Hi, this is Pastor Patrick of Calvary Chapel, Wichita. I pray that the Lord will richly bless you as you listen to this message. Lord, we thank you that this world is not all there is. Thank you that you've ransomed us to so much more, to an infinitely greater future with you. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. And technically, we made it to the end of the chapter last week, but it was a holiday weekend, and even if you were here, which some of you weren't, we went through it kind of quickly. And we went through it in service to a special message. We actually went topical and and application first, and, and then we chased it with a look at what God was saying to us in the chapter that we just happened to be in at that time. But Fourth of July weekend, if you've been part of our fellowship for a while, it's sort of customary for me to share a message about the vision that we have for the coming year, what God is speaking to us uh, about the coming months for this church, for Calvary, Wichita. And, and July 4th weekend for no other reason um, that it's the anniversary of my family moving here um, and becoming a part of this fellowship five years ago. But last week, we did something a little different than we have in years past. We looked not just at vision for this particular body of believers, but we looked at the church in America, and we looked at it in in light of the direction, the trajectory that every Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church seems to be headed in our nation. And we came to a conclusion, there's really two things that we need to focus on. Our vision for the coming year has two bullet points. The first is to pray for revival, and the second, at the same time, is to plan for persecution. And if that doesn't make sense, or even if it does, I'd encourage you to get last week's message. The short version is, I truly believe we're being plunged, even as I speak, being plunged into a season where there really will be only two options. If we look not just at the change happening in our nation, but at the ever-increasing pace of change, the rate of change is accelerating, And I think very shortly, we're going to be seeing church like we've never known it. Either church like we've never known it because we're going to be facing persecution that has quite simply been unknown on the shores of this great country, or we're going to be seeing another revival like we haven't seen on on any substantial scale since the 60s. Because truly, revival is the only hope our country has left. And turning back to Hebrews 10 this morning, picking it up in verse 32, we're reminded we're not alone in facing those two possibilities. And to a certain extent, life is about those two possibilities. The universe is binary, right? There's God and there's not God, and there isn't a third option. There is no neutral. And the first century church that this writer is is speaking to, that that he's writing to, was facing those two same possibilities and facing them in the same way that I think we soon will be. In the same way, if you think about it, that most of the church throughout most of the world always has. For the last almost 2,000 years, persecution has been the default state, the normal condition of the church. For most of the church, most of the time that there's been a church their default experience has been one of pain for being believers. The experience that most of us had growing up in the 20th and 21st centuries in the United States, that's what's abnormal. 
That's the part that's unusual. What's normal, what's, what's more familiar to most believers throughout history is what Jesus warned us about. In this world, you will have what? Tribulation. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And for some 200 million of our brothers and sisters, as we gather here this morning, that's their life. In more than 60 countries around the world right now, that's not an intellectual or theological concept. That's their day-to-day existence. And unless we see revival, unless God, by his sovereign grace, again pours out his Holy Spirit, I think we'll be astonished at just how quickly we join them. So what do we do if and when we enter that world? What do we need to remember if and when persecution comes? Real persecution, not social awkwardness, not someone unfriending you on Facebook. The author of Hebrews is writing to friends, he's writing to Jewish believers, and at the end of chapter 10, he gives them 10 suggestions, 10 specific concrete recommendations for what they should do as they face persecution in the first century. Hebrews is written mid-60s A.D., so it's either right before the persecution of the church by Nero was beginning or perhaps with that persecution already underway. There were ten waves of persecution, at least most historians identify ten distinct waves of persecution perpetrated against the church by the Roman Empire. Nero's was the first. And it had the Jews in this particular church, the church that was the recipient of this letter, wondering, was was Christianity such a good idea? Maybe Judaism was better because, because it might hurt a little less. It might be less dangerous. Now, they're saying maybe Judaism is better for this entire letter. The author has been saying, no, what's better? Jesus is better. But what, what do you do if you're convinced of that, if you truly believe that, but you find yourself in a place and at a time where believing that is going to start to cost you? Well, the author had three suggestions for us last week. The first, verse 32, was to look to the past. Draw strength from remembering how God brought us through previous trials. Recall, verse 32, the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods." So apparently the church that's being written to here had some experience with persecution. It happened to them before. Some of it just probably happened because they were believers. Some of it, it seems that they almost sought out. They could have flown under the radar. They could have kept it on the down low, but they intentionally blew their cover. They stepped into harm's way by coming alongside the writer of this letter. He said, yeah, I was out there doing my ministry. I was out there preaching my Jesus, and you came alongside me while I was in chains for being a believer, and and you participated in my suffering with me, not because you had to, but because you chose to. So the author is saying, hey, reach back to that. Remember that. Remember what it was like and try to get reconnected with why you did what you did when you did that. Remember, even while it was happening, how it made sense for you. Your belief was having a a very tangible cost. Do you remember why at the time you thought it was worth it? And as you remember those things, can you remember also that you were right? that it was worth it. It's worth it because I'm here and I'm ministering to you and to others even right now. It was worth it for me. It was worth it because Jesus is always worth it. 
And last week when we talked about this, we acknowledged that for most of us, by virtue of living in the United States, we don't have these firsthand personal experiences with persecution to draw upon. We haven't lived that. We haven't experienced it, most of us. We've lived in this, this weird bubble in history. But millions of our brothers and sisters have lived through persecution. Millions, millions of our brothers and sisters are right now underground or in chains or in fear because they live in a place where it's not safe. In fact, it might be illegal. It might be punishable by death to speak the name of Jesus or to own a Bible. And millions of people, as, as they've experienced that, many of them have written about it. Many of them have spoken about it. Many are writing and speaking about it even now. Even at grave personal risk to themselves and to their families, there's, there's mind-blowing testimony coming out of the persecuted church. Testimony that I think we need to go to school on, that we need to learn from, and we're going to spend some time doing that in coming weeks. But it also strikes me, and we didn't touch on this last week, it strikes me that we can also draw on our experiences going through trials of other kinds. Most of us have not experienced persecution at the hands of our own government, but there's no one in this room that hasn't experienced some sort of trial. Even as a believer, we face illness. We have accidents. We experience the death of people dear to us. Loss of job, financial hardship, family rejecting us, friends betraying us. Some of us are thinking, yeah, me, 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 mostly at the same time. We know what trials are, yes. And yet hasn't God been faithful to bring us through those trials, even more just to survive them, to bring us through you know, intact Hasn't God used those things to strengthen us, to refine us, to draw us closer to him, to help us fall in love with him and depend on him in a way that we never would have had we not had that experience? God wastes nothing, uses everything, including pain and hardship, to cultivate a tighter, deeper relationship with him. You've heard me say this before, many of you, but I think it bears repeating. Think of I don't know, three, four, think of the, a handful of the worst things that have ever happened to you. And, and even this morning as we're here together, pick out just one. Doesn't have to, you know, don't, don't rack your brain trying to think of the absolute very worst, but something truly devastating, something that wrecked you as you were going through it. And ask yourself, however bad it was, whatever it was, Hasn't God been faithful to do what he does, to bring beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning? Hasn't he done something good, brought something good out of whatever pain or trial or tragedy he allowed in your life? I think of this, my thought goes to my relationship with my father. My father was my mentor, my hero, my best friend for years and years. And the last couple of years of, the, of his life, all of that went away. It turned out that he wasn't the guy that I thought he was, or he had stopped being the guy that I thought that he was, and hurt me deeply. My father took his own life, and even his last words, the suicide note he left, he couldn't resist taking one more shot at me. Wrecked me. Absolutely wrecked me. 
And yet I can draw a bright, straight line from that experience and where I'm standing right now. From, from that place, from that situation, to the opportunity to teach God's word and love God's people, there's, there's cause and effect there. And if you're, here's the thing, if you're in the middle of whatever it is that you were thinking about, I said, think of something horrific, something devastating. If you're, if you're living it right now, this might not work because you might not see the other side yet. You know, the, the, the life in this world, we're either in a trial or we've just gone through a trial or we're about to go through a trial. If you're in the middle of a trial, it's sometimes really hard to see the good that God has waiting for you on the other side. And you're in the middle of it and people try to throw Romans 8.28 at you. All things work together for good. Yeah, go jump in a lake. <laughs> and like, not a close one. Drive, drive to Oklahoma and jump in a lake there. Because, because what do you see when you're in the middle of it? All you can see is pain, loss, sadness, suffering. But that, that's sort of the author's point. If you can't see forward through the trial that you're in, if you can't see point or purpose in what's going on, look back at a trial that you've already been through. Look, look back, think back to a time that God allowed you to be in a really hard place, in a in a black place, and remember that he brought you out on the other side, and remember how he brought you out on the other side, and remember the good that has happened on the other side. Look back and ask yourself, how did you endure that storm? What did you learn from that storm? What, what do you know now that you didn't know before you went through that storm about God and his love and his faithfulness? We might need to do that if we continue down the road that our nation seems to be headed. Second suggestion the author has, still verse 34. He said, look to our past. He said also, second point, remember my promise. Second suggestion for our first century brothers and sisters, and by extension for you and me and anyone who might face persecution, remember where we're going. Remember how you endured persecution before, knowing, verse 34, that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. See, if this world were all there was, if the song that we sang a moment ago wasn't true, and these, you know, whatever, 60, 70, 80 years was, was the full extent of life, it would make good sense to avoid pain at all costs, wouldn't it? But we know there's more to life than this. Don't we? We know we've discovered in the truth of God's word that this life, this life isn't even really living compared to the life that's to come. This life is about getting ready to live. This is life is about preparing to be the bride of Christ, and it's about helping others prepare to join us as the bride of Christ. And when we put this life in that context, enduring trials, experiencing pain, all of a sudden, those are no longer things to automatically be avoided. They might, they may very well be things to be gratefully accepted. In some cases, even sought out. Pain? Yeah. For the sake of Jesus. For the sake of bringing God's truth to people who haven't heard it or haven't believed it. 
And look, when we do it, it's always going to feel wrong. Because <laughs> our bodies, our minds, the, the chassis that right now our souls inhabit, that wants to avoid pain at all costs. Even if it means inflicting pain on other people in order to avoid pain ourselves. Survival of the fittest. Kill or be killed. Do unto others, but do it first before they have a chance to do you. See, but in Christ Jesus, we can override our bodies, our minds. In Christ Jesus, we can realize that this life is really, a lot of times, a choice between doing what feels right and doing what is right. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did again and again. That's what Jesus very conspicuously, very dramatically did the night before his execution. Before his torture began, he spent an agonizing night being tortured at the thought of what was coming, agonizing in the garden, torn exactly the same way that we're so often torn. I, I know what I'm called to do. I know what is right. But I know what feels right. I know that what I'm called to do is going to cost what settled it for Jesus? That tug of war that happened in, in his soul between what is right and what feels right. Yeah. God's will, knowing God, trusting God, and knowing the outcome. Knowing that it would be worth it. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Scripture says, for the joy set before him. Jesus has never regretted going to the cross. Jesus has never regretted the 24 hours of torture that preceded it. Jesus has never regretted the separation from the Father that was worse than all of it put together. Jesus has never regretted the scars that he bears in his person even today. When we see Jesus face to face, he will say to us, it was worth it. And he had that knowledge, that promise in the garden. He knew what was going to go down. He knew his eternity would never be the same. He decided to walk away from what felt good and run toward what is good. Why? He knew his eternity would never be the same, but he did it so that our eternity would never be the same. We have that example, and, and let's take it a step further. If you think about it, our promise in making that decision even better than his. Jesus still bears the scars of his crucifixion. Jesus is forever changed by his sacrifice on our behalf. And he says it's worth it because his sacrifice purchased us. The things we sacrifice for the gospel, we get back. The things we endure that others might hear, we only lay them down temporarily. Because when we get to heaven, we not only get bodies that are better than these. Whatever we endure in our bodies, we're glorified beyond and we're rewarded besides. James 1.12, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We get everything back that we sacrifice and rewards on top of it. 
Our sacrifice in this world, it's an investment. Some of you have, have investment accounts or 401ks. And, and so you're temporarily, willingly, without the use of that money for the short term. You could, you could use that money right now in the present tense to do something fun, to buy a, I don't know, buy a boat or take a vacation or buy a new car. But you're sacrificing the short term. Why? For a more comfortable retirement. If any of us are still here. The author of Hebrews is telling us enduring persecution for the sake of Jesus is a lot like that. We invest our present comfort, even the comfort of our families, for a richer, for a more blessed eternity. Short-term cost, long-term gain? No, 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 no. Really, really, really short-term cost for a forever gain. Keep that perspective, the author is saying in verse 35. Keep that in mind and do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Hang on to the confidence that we have in Christ Jesus, that he has a plan and that you can't outgive him. That he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He will not allow us to outgive him. Now, verse 36, he says, look, not going to lie to you. It's not always going to be fun. You have need of endurance. It's going to get rough, he's saying. But on the other side of rough, on the other side, not just of this immediate trial at hand, but on the other side of this life, after you've done the will of God, still verse 36, after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And that's not, that's not may in the sense of might. That's not may like maybe you'll get to receive the promise no, he's saying you'll be qualified to, you'll, you'll be allowed to, you'll get to. There's no risk here that we won't be rewarded for the hardship that we endure. We definitely will. Now, it might take a while, verse 37, but when the time is right, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Jesus won't be late. We just have to hang in until that day we see him face to face, until we stand before him at the judgment seat where we will receive rewards for our faithfulness. Now, let's be clear. Are those rewards for believing? No. A reward for believing in Jesus and trusting in Jesus is Jesus. He is our exceedingly great reward. But at the judgment seat of Christ, those who endure receive beyond even heaven, beyond even the inheritance of his kingdom. Believing in Jesus cost us nothing, cost him everything. Rewards are a function of those times, those situations that believing actually costs us something, whether time, whether finances, whether comfort, whether dignity, whether our own lives. But rewards aside, Jesus is coming back. And where do we want to be standing when he does, here's the third point the author has. He says, have this, keep this perspective. Measure your life, measure your decisions. Are you for him or against him? God, not God. That's the third thing that the author encourages us to keep in mind in face of coming persecution. Verse 38, the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. There's no neutral in this world. 
There's God, there's not God. And everything is either one or the other. Nothing is both. So when Jesus returns, do we want to be numbered among those who accepted him or rejected him? Most of us this morning have already made that decision. We've said, okay, if it's Jesus or hell, I'm going to go with Jesus. I mean, that's the choice. And most of us have made that choice. But having made that choice, we have other choices to make. When Jesus returns, do we want to be numbered among those who told our friends about him or those who were embarrassed by him? Do we want to be counted among those who obeyed him or those who defied him? Those who trusted in him or those who consistently doubted? Those who loved him and served him or those who loved and served themselves? Choices. We're going to look again at these last two verses next week because they really serve as the springboard for chapter 11. Verse 38 is, is a lift. It's a quote from Habakkuk. It's a verse that's quoted two other times in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. But what does that mean? Obviously, it's important. It comes up again and again. What does it mean? What is it like? The author says, I'll, let me give you some examples, and that's chapter 11, the hall of faith, some have called it. But before we go there, before we get into, into that whole subject, I want to finish the thought we began last week. Two points for our vision. We said pray for revival, plan for persecution. Three things the author just reminded us, three things he's suggesting we do as we plan for persecution. Draw strength from our past, remember God's promise, and keep the right perspective. There's God and there's not God. But there strikes me that there's one thing he didn't say. There's one thing missing from that list. In fact, conspicuous by its absence. He didn't tell anywhere. He didn't tell us to hate those who persecute us. In fact, he doesn't tell us to hate anybody. Not even our enemies. And I spent some time here this morning because walking out last week, you know, the law of unintended consequences. Walking out last week, I had not one, but several conversations about people saying, I'm so angry that this is happening. I'm so angry that they're doing this to us. Who is they exactly? I want to talk a little bit about that as, as we continue our message. But to tee it up, I want to show a short video. The person in this video, her name is Patty Height. She's sharing a portion of her testimony. She's a friend. My wife played softball with her. She's babysat my daughter when Michaela was little. And, and Patty and I did some ministry together, and she's going to tell you a little bit about that ministry in this video segment. I was that girl who thought she was a little boy. I grew up in a neighborhood with, with other boys, and we all played together. We did everything the same. I walked the same, talked the same, moved the same, excelled at sports, just like all of them. And as I got a little bit older and realized that I actually wasn't a boy, it really confused me, and it actually made me very angry. Once I hit puberty, um, I noticed that I was having attractions to other girls. 
that were my age. And so I was very confused about this. And I felt very isolated because this was back in the 1970s and there was no place to turn, no one to talk to about this. So I tried to deal with all of these issues just on my own. And so one thing that I did that I thought would make all of this go away was I got married at 19 years old. And that was troublesome because I ended up marrying a man that was physically abusive to me. So after a few years in this marriage, I filed for a divorce and then I just fully came out as a lesbian. And at that point, I actually felt freedom for the first time. After living many years homosexually, I started realizing that there was still an emptiness in me that no drug and no other woman was able to fill. And so I wanted I wanted to reach out for something spiritual. So I was reading many you know books on other types of spirituality and then my brother died when I was 36 years old and I realized then that death was real and I need to find out if there's a god and if there's a heaven. I expressed to my girlfriend that I was wondering if the way we were living was wrong or not and she said that she was feeling the same thing and so right there in our bedroom we got down on our knees and cried out and said god if you're real will you show us and if the way we're living is wrong show us and so we looked through the house and found a bible and as we opened up the bible it opened up to this book called Leviticus, and it opened up to chapter 18, and our eyes fell on verse 22 that says, man shall not lie with man as he does with the woman. It is an abomination. Now, we had seen that verse before, unbeknownst to us, on signs that were held up at Gay Pride that said LEV 18 colon 22, but we had no idea what that meant. But when God spoke it to us, it had an impact on our lives. So right then we knew God was real and that he had spoken to us, and so we should try to find a church and when we did we we walked in and we felt a sense of welcome right away we couldn't put our finger on it we didn't know what it was we went in and sat down and then they started playing worship music and I'd never heard worship music before in my life and as they started playing music that was comforting and soothing to me I saw the words to the songs up on these screens and the words were talking about God's holiness and his righteousness and his love for me and when I realized that God loved me it ripped my heart wide open to hear the truth of the message that the pastor was was giving because the pastor was giving a message straight out of God's word which is truth entirely in January of 2003 I fully trusted in the Lord and prayed to for him to be the Lord and Savior in my life and I fully surrendered every aspect including my homosexuality over to him and gave him the reins of my life which was a big step for me because that meant i needed to trust him and i didn't trust anybody but i knew that i could trust him because he overwhelmed me with his love and with his presence and there was nothing that the world had ever offered me before that was as beautiful as god's love for me and he kept pouring that over me he was washing me with his word and with his love through his holy spirit and that changed my life i started reading the bible every day i cleaned out my literally my house i cleaned out my heart because i was giving him everything and through that he showed me that i could trust him and he would tell me reveal to me ways that I had been lied to from the world and he replaced those lies with his truth and I started becoming clean I felt clean and I'd always felt dirty because of the things in my life that had been done to me and the things that I had done I felt ashamed and dirty yet he was washing me 
with his truth. It's been a 12 year journey. He's continuing to sanctify me and peeling off layers that I didn't even know were there. But every time he, he peels off a layer, he replaces it with, with this newness. Pretty, pretty remarkable woman um, and a pretty amazing testimony. Praise God. I mean, just to add some context, some of those pictures that you saw, yeah, she was playing women's professional football. There is such a thing. And she works in a profession that's not just gay affirming, but straight hating. You know, in her profession, people like you and me are called breeders. Um, and that today I can call her my sister, that we can, that she's our co-laborer in Christ, is amazing. And it reminds us that our Savior is awesome, and he really did come to seek and save those who are so lost. Because you got to ask yourself, what was Patty? And by the way, hundreds of people like her. Her story is not unique. I personally know at least a dozen people, including her girlfriend, by the way, her ex-girlfriend, obviously, that have come out of homosexuality. And it's interesting, in the, in the three weeks since the Supreme Court decision we talked about last week, more and more and more people are, have been coming forward just in the last 20 days, overcoming you know awkwardness to say, yeah, me too. Why? Because they feel led in light of what's going on in our nation to say, hey, I'm living proof that, that no one has to be gay, that there's power in the blood of Jesus to change anyone out of anything. But getting back to my question, what were those people? What was my friend Patty before she came to Jesus, before she became our sister in the Lord? Because many of us look at a practicing homosexual, especially a, a militant in your face one, and we say dyke or we say fag. And yes, I'm being deliberately offensive. Even if we don't use that language, what we're thinking is sinner. And we say it with that emphasis. Sinner. Because it's a sin that most of us can't relate to. It's a sin most of us don't understand. And, and when we say sinner, yeah, we're right, except only half right. Is that person a sinner? Yes. What's the rest of it? They're a sinner Jesus loved. They're a sinner Jesus died for. They're a sinner just like us. And if Patty had been the only person who had ever lived, Jesus would have died for her, not because she's now a believer. I've got friends I work with in the world who are practicing homosexuals, no interest in changing, no use for Jesus, get really, really angry at the suggestion that their choice is a choice or that it's not God's first choice for anyone. I don't have any confidence. God is God and praise God. He defies my expectations again and again. But apart from God, I've got no expectation that I'm going to see any of them in church ever. But that even being the case. If any one of them had been the only person that had ever lived, Jesus would have died for that person as well, simply so that person could have a choice. We've got this tendency to single this one sin out, to put it in a different category, simply because we're not familiar with it, most of us. We can't relate to it. We can't understand what it is to be tempted in that direction. So our pride wants to differentiate it and say, that one's worse. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that, that's worse. That's, I mean, no, I would do a lot of things. I've done a lot of things. I wouldn't go there. That's worse, which means standing over here, I'm better. That's how our pride works. 
And when we start going down that road, even if we go the, 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 the slightest distance down that road, it gets really easy to start painting in broad strokes, doesn't it? And talk about them, those people, you know, the gay community. Except the gay community is a lot less of a community than people make it out to be. The gay community is made up of people, of individuals. And by the way, so is the media. So is the left. So is Washington. So is Hollywood. So is the world. We like to bundle people under big monolithic labels so we can, we can categorize them and feel better than them. We forget conveniently that those groups are made up of individuals, individuals who might disagree with us, who might oppose us, who might hate us or even attack us, but who never stop being persons. They never cease being souls. Souls just like Patty. Souls just like you and me. Souls that Jesus died for. Souls that Jesus went to the cross to rescue that he might bring him into the kingdom of God. And look, I know I lost some of you as soon as I compared you to a homosexual, especially to a militant homosexual, because some of you are thinking, I never said the things that those people say. I've never thrown blood or feces at, at God's people the way that's happening in gay pride parades around the country. I've never participated in a mock crucifixion like happened last week that was in the news. I've never done things that horrible. You're right, you've done things that are worse. What you and I did was much worse than anything I just named. We didn't oppose the church or God's people. We opposed God. We stood in defiance to God. We didn't throw feces at believers. We hurled our filth at God himself. And when we crucified our Savior, it wasn't play acting. Part of what we have to remember, when people who don't know Jesus revile us, Whatever their sins of choice might be, we had our own. In the passage of Hebrews we've been looking at, the author tells us in the face of persecution, we've got to draw strength from our past trials. Strength to endure those trials? Yeah, I think that's part of it. We also have to look to our past trials to draw strength to find grace for the people who hate us. And we've had past trials, haven't we? There's no one here that doesn't know what it's like to struggle with his or her own flesh. Maybe that's something that we can keep in mind. Maybe that's, maybe that's somewhere that we can go to find grace for people who are struggling with their own sin and in their struggle maybe want to put some of that pain on us. And by the way, I'm not singling out the homosexual community. Most of the gay people I know actually don't have a lot of interest in this debate. They just want to live their lives, and to a great extent, the homosexual issue is being used by others who aren't even gay themselves as a, as a place to make a stand, as, a, as an opportunity to attack the church and God and the Bible. And that's the real question. How do we deal with those who hate us, with those who oppose us, those who attack us, regardless of their sexual orientation? I think part of the answer the author pointed us to is look to our past. Remember our struggles. Remember we were sinners just like they are. And the difference, the only difference, is that we're saved by grace.
And we're saved by grace through faith. And we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. And when our pride rears up from this place over here, this place that Jesus has brought us to, when our pride rears up and we want to vilify some sin, any sin, that sin is the sin that topples empires. We have to ask ourselves, on what basis do we put any sin in a different category? When Scripture clearly says, don't. 1 Corinthians 6, you know the verse. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. You want to paint with a broad brush? God paints with a broad brush. He says, all y'all. And those of us who weren't any of those things were other things, yeah? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Different locals, same union. Same source, pride. Same object of hatred, God. So yeah, homosexuality is a sin. We, we can't get around that. And that's why comparing gay rights to civil rights is a flawed analogy. Opponents of the Bible are trying to make hay out of this. They're trying to argue just like we had to outgrow the Bible's outdated perspectives about slavery and about women. We also have to outgrow its obsolete, its archaic position on homosexuality. One problem, the Bible never promotes slavery. Do we see slavery in the Bible? Yeah, we do. A lot, in fact. But there's a difference between observing something and promoting something. The Bible deals with slavery because slavery was a fact at the time that the Bible was written. But all of the Bible, every verse, every chapter points to the person of Jesus Christ. The climax of the story is the cross. And the cross makes it possible for all of us to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And I cannot call a man property and brother at the same time. It doesn't work. The Bible never says that slavery is right. The gospel wars with the very idea of slavery. But the Bible always teaches that homosexual behavior is wrong. Usually close to the same verses that tell us that pornography is wrong. And that adultery is wrong. And that living with someone and sleeping with someone you're not married to is wrong. The partying is wrong, and greed is wrong, and neglecting your family, and gossiping. And so were some of you. So were all of us, let's be honest. Different sense, same situation. Same situation leading to the same condemnation until Jesus rescued us. Such were some of you, 1 Corinthians 6.11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Which means if we want to single out a sin and, and say that's a sin different than the other sins, not the unpardonable sin, different conversation for a different day. But if we want to single out another sin, it's not going to be something on that list. Here's the one we need to focus on. Are you ready? Look again at verse 11. So were some of you. Past tense, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Why were we the things that we were? Why did we sin the th sins that we sinned? Because we were victims. We were victims of the enemy's lies and machinations. We were victims of our own sin nature, however it expressed itself, in whatever form it came out to play. 
But here's what we've got to ask. What about now? Because for most of us here this morning, we know the truth. What about now? Now that the Holy Spirit has shown us Satan for who he is, now that the Holy Spirit has revealed his lies, now that the Holy Spirit has given us power to overcome our sin nature, so were some of you, but can we really say that our sin is in the past tense? Or is there sin that we're willingly accepting, embracing, welcoming into our lives? even having been washed, set apart, justified. And I'm not talking about struggling or stumbling, because we all do. And we're all gonna until we see Jesus face to face. None of us is glorified yet. We still battle our flesh. But are we battling, or are we just rolling over and surrendering? There's There's a difference between stumbling and falling. There's a difference between falling and staying down on the mat rolling over and giving Satan our belly and saying, have your way with me, sin. If there's a sin that we should hate above all of the others, it shouldn't be the one that we don't understand. It should be the one that we know all too well. It shouldn't be the sin that attacks us from without. It should be the one that eats away at us from within. Peter tells us we have, past tense again, escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Have we? Are we? Are we putting to death the sin in our members or are we still wallowing around in the mud? And do we have grace for our sin and for our failure? Praise Jesus, yes. Is that an excuse to let sin abound? Good heavens, no. Even though we were his enemies, while we were yet sinners, denying reviling, attacking the very God who created us. Jesus died for us. Three points the author made in Hebrews this morning, and that was the first. We've got to look to our past, and we've got to ask ourselves, why would we want to keep sinning looking at what Jesus has brought us out of? Why do we want to keep hurting God? Why would we keep defying a Savior willing to die for us? Because that's not what we're here to do. We're here to do what Jesus did, to lay down our lives for the sake of our brethren and those who might be our brethren one day, even if right now they hate us. Second point the author made, promise. We look past, we also look future and realize that the reason we're here is to preach the gospel to every living creature, not just the people who like us and invite us over for dinner and ask us to explain our theology over a second cup of coffee. We're here to make disciples of all the nations, to point them to the promise that they have in Christ Jesus if they're willing to accept it. And we're here to use the same method Jesus used, to love our enemies. We're here to bear the same price that Jesus bore, persecution. And we're here to point people to the same future that Jesus purchased for us. The third thing the author of Hebrews said this morning is he said, have that perspective. There's God and there's not God. Let's live this life on God's side. And Lord, boy, do we need your help. Because our flesh 
points us to us and our mind revolves around us and our lives. We want to center them around us and our convenience and our comfort and getting what we need and what we want. And Lord, that's so the opposite of you because you sacrificed everything when we were nothing except rebels to bring us back into a relationship that we had spat upon. Lord, teach us what it is to have your heart, to see the world with your eyes, and to love others with the love that you've shown us. What's hindering the flow of his love through you out to other people? Where do we need to be broken? Where are we girded up and, and strengthened in our own might? Where are we fortifying ourselves maintaining our own structural integrity when really God would have us surrender. Be broken upon the rock or be crushed beneath the stone. God asks us to be broken so that he can use us, so that he can take all of us. Jesus' body was wrecked at the cross. He gave everything to serve us, to save us. What's our response? Can we do less? Lord, teach us. Show us those areas of pride that we're hanging on to, clinging to, that we might be broken before you. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Break us, Lord, that we might be used of you, that others could enter into that same always and forever relationship that we have come to know. Are we being poured out are we letting everything that we have, everything that is within us, be poured out for the sake of the gospel? Or are we holding back? Are we holding ourselves in? Are we keeping something in reserve? Are we playing defense, protecting ourselves, when God would have us playing offense, knowing that the gates of hell won't prevail against us? Let's consider his blood poured out. And let's ask him, Lord, show us where are we less than poured out? Where are we less than spent for the sake of the cross? Where are we holding back? Teach us, Lord, we pray. Lord, we know how we are, and we know how this world is, and we know our enemy. We're familiar with his ways, and all of those things are going to war against the everything that you want to be in us. Lord, be our everything. And when we take back, when we grab our lives back out of your hands, 
Lord, thank you for the grace that you show that you'll remind us and you'll convict us and you'll allow us to give it back to you again. And we pray that every time we do, we would give you more and, and every time we take back, we would take back less, that we would be more and more and more surrendered to you and you would be more and more and more of our everything. And that as you are and as we do, that we might be poured out more and more and more that you might be everything to others. God is so good. Let's worship God who gave us love, who teaches us love, and who sends us out in the world to love. We hope the Lord has spoken to you through his word today. If you've got questions or comments about this message, we'd love to hear from you. And if you're in the Wichita area and don't have a church that you call home, I hope you'll drop by and check us out. You can always get current service times and directions at area code 316-263-3804 or online at www.ccwichita.org. Most importantly, though, please remember... God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. And the penalty for that sin is eternal death. But God in his mercy sent Jesus to pay that price, to die that death for us. That's why Jesus went to the cross 2,000 years ago. He died so we wouldn't have to. And he rose again in glory, promising eternal life with him forever for those who put their trust in him. So if you haven't decided what to do with the cross, why not say yes to Christ's free gift of salvation right now? You can do it wherever you are simply by praying, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I confess I am a sinner, and I need your free gift of salvation. Jesus, please come into my life. Be my Savior and be my Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The scripture tells us if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you are his. So pick up a Bible and start reading. Begin at the Gospel of John to understand and rejoice in everything it means to be a child of God. If you're in the Wichita area, I hope that you'll stop by. We'll make sure you have a Bible along with some materials to help you begin your walk with the Lord. If you're not close by, feel free to give us a call. We'll be glad to help you find a solid Bible teaching church in your area. Thanks again for listening. May the Lord richly bless you as you commit your ways to Him. 